I next met with Dr. Raphael Fonseca for his perspective on multiple myeloma, a disease that is rapidly changing because of new research in the field. Dr. Fonseca began by providing an overview. Multiple myeloma is a cancer that arises from within the bone marrow, from the cells that normally would produce the antibodies that help us fight off infection. Now, these cells are called the plasma cells, although we frequently will refer to them also as the myeloma cells. Normal individuals have a few of these plasma cells, usually 1% or less of the bone marrow. But as a person is diagnosed with myeloma or one of the related conditions, the number of the cells inside the bone marrow increases. Myeloma patients, by definition, must have 10% or greater plasma cells in their bone marrow, but there's quite a bit of variability in that measurement. Now, as the cells grow, they impinge on neighbor cells. So one of the common findings in myeloma patients is that patients will develop anemia because these myeloma cells take up more and more of the space inside the bone marrow, resulting in decreased production of red cells and the clinical findings of anemia, including symptoms of fatigue and tiredness. Now, the cells create other problems. They, by virtue of growing in the bones, create erosion into the bony structure And this can be seen in multiple ways. Patients can have osteoporosis. And if these cells grow in a focal fashion, sometimes they can create what we call lytic lesions, which are punched out lesions in the bones that ultimately can lead to pain and structural failure of bones that we would see in the clinic as fractures. Now, as the cells erode into these bones, one of the things that happens is that calcium is released into the circulation. So the patients may also have an elevated calcium level, the hypercalcemia. And last but not least, patients with myeloma will have complications from the proteins that are produced by the cells. Again, the cells normally produce monoclonal immunoglobulins, and chemically these are proteins. They go out into the circulation, and these proteins can cause a number of problems, but the most important one to recognize is that the immunoglobulins, when they go to the kidney, they can be toxic to kidneys, and patients can present with renal insufficiency or frank renal failure. Now, is this that the proteins are actually kind of clogging up the kidneys? There's a number of mechanisms through which the proteins can actually create damage. It is primarily one of the smaller fractions of those proteins, the light chains. They actually filter through the kidney, and then they plug the tubules in the kidneys, creating essentially a congestion in the kidney, lack of adequate blood supply, and ultimately death of the kidney tissue. So that's what leads to renal failure in patients with myeloma. And if you take those four things together, again, which were calcium, renal problems, anemia, and bone disease, this is best described by the acronym of CRAB, which refers to those symptoms that one should be looking for in patients with myeloma-related conditions. Now, do you visualize this as an incurable disease, and how do you discuss that aspect with your patient? In 2010, I think most of us think of the majority of myeloma patients having a serious disorder that ultimately will result in their demise. So we don't think of most myeloma patients as being curable. However, recent data from clinical trials suggest that there are some patients that can have very long-lasting remissions. Patients who have uh, good induction therapy followed by transplant and also who have the right biology, some of them are out 8 and 10 years later without evidence of disease recurrence. However, under the most optimistic of scenarios, this would be hardly more than 10 or 20% of patients. So for the majority of patients, we tell them that myeloma remains an incurable condition. Now, because of the excitement of all these new drugs that are available for the treatment of myeloma, patients, physicians, and friends start talking about myeloma being a chronic disease. 
And this is, in fact, true, but only for a segment of the myeloma patients, those patients that have what we call standard risk myeloma. For patients who are diagnosed with myeloma and have aggressive features, we globally would call the high-risk myeloma. These are patients that the disease puts them at risk for death over the next two years after the time of diagnosis. Now, as I kind of look at the disease and how it's managed, it seems like it kind of gets roughly broken down into patients who are considered eligible for transplant and those who are not considered eligible for transplant. Do you agree with that? And within those two categories, how do oncologists sort of think through management? Well, still in 2010, we break most patients into one of those two categories. Transplant remains an important tool for the treatment of myeloma patients, And the reason for this distinction is that there are certain drugs that should not be used in someone who's considering collection of stem cells followed by a stem cell transplant, namely melphalan. So for all practical purposes, we think along those terms. If the patient has a good functional capacity and has no major comorbid conditions, usually in patients under the age of 75, certainly with greater emphasis on those under the age of 65, we discuss with patients the possibility of transplant and try to create a long-term management plan that includes an induction therapy followed by transplant. Whereas for those who have other comorbid conditions or are of advanced age, we might discuss simpler regimens, some of which will include melphalan, and at that point the patient would have to forego the option of having a future stem cell transplant. Now this is a rapidly moving field. Some of the treatments we're using in the transplant-eligible patients are also being used in the ineligible patients, And I think we'll see changes as time goes by. But I think still, for the practicing physician and nurse in the community, this is an important distinction, primarily as it refers to the use of melphalan. And in terms of the transplant, we're used to thinking about that in terms of the possibility of cure. But in this situation, is it just another part of sort of palliation and trying to extend survival? I think that's right. For most patients, we think transplant will provide disease remission that will have some duration after the transplant is done. Now, this could be short, could be a year. For some patients, this could be 10 years. So for most patients, we don't think of transplant as being a curative treatment for myeloma patients. And I think it's important to recognize that transplant can be used as the first line of treatment for a patient, usually coupled with induction beforehand, or it can be reserved as a salvage strategy for a patient, a second or third line therapy for the disease. And there are a number of studies that suggest that whether you use it up front or down the line, the results may be similar. So again, it's important to consider primarily in those younger individuals. And what exactly is the technique? I know there's auto and there's allo transplant. What's used here? And what do you say to patients who say, what am I going to go through? Is it possible I could die from this transplant? The majority of the transplant that is done for patients with multiple myeloma involves the administration of the self-bone marrow, the so-called autologous transplant. Now, in reality, most of the time, we don't use bone marrow anymore. We collect the stem cells from the periphery. And the way I describe this to patients is as follows. First, you'll get this treatment that we call induction, where we try to clean up the bone marrow and get that myeloma count as low as possible, get the plasma cells to a low number as we can. And following this, and if the patient still is interested and has the right physical condition, we move on to the process of harvest. Now, harvest involves the placement of a catheter and mobilization of stem cells into the peripheral blood by the use of growth factors. Now, patients get injections of Nupogen, the GCSF, 
And they do so because this increases the rate at which the bone marrow cells divide. And as a consequence, some of the cells spill into the circulation. Now, with the catheter in place, we can actually take a little stream of blood and put it out of the body in circulation into a machine that is called pheresis, where the stem cells are collected. Now, I tell my patients we have a requirement of a minimum number of 2 million cells per kilogram of body weight, so 2 times 10 to the 6 cells per kilogram of body weight, to know that we have enough stem cells to be able to form a new bone marrow. We like to have at least 5 million cells, but 2 would be sufficient. Now, we frequently use this analogy of the seeds and the garden, so this would be the seed collection. Then we use a weed killer, in this case is a chemotherapy, which is melphalan, and that's a standard regimen that is used for most myeloma patients. Myeloma patients routinely do not receive radiation therapy. Their conditioning for the transplant consists of intravenous melphalan, which is usually given at a dose of 200 milligrams per meter square, and this is usually given over a day or two. Now, two days later, patients have their stem cells given back into their system. This is administered as a blood transfusion through the catheter. And then the patients have a period of time, about 10 to 14 days, in which these stem cells go back inside the bone marrow. They take or they graft inside the bone marrow and are able to generate a new cadre of white cells and red cells and repopulate the patient's bone marrow. And this is the toughest time for recovery for patients because we have to wait for those counts to come up. So as patients have a low white count, they may be at risk for infection. If they have a low platelet count, they may be at risk for bleeding. And if they have a low hemoglobin, they, of course, will require blood transfusions. Now, at the centers that do this on a routine basis, the mortality has dropped significantly. At most centers, this is in the order of about 1%. So I do tell patients that there is indeed a risk, there is some toxicity, but actually the procedure is quite safe. The greatest challenge is obviously the side effects that come from the chemo and that it might take a few weeks for patients to recover and the sickness and the discomfort they'll have as they are going through the recovery process. Patients will routinely have abdominal cramps. They can have loose bowel movements. They can have irritation of their throat and their esophagus. And they can have the fevers associated with the transplant. And that is a period of time that obviously impinges on the quality of life of patients. But usually at about six weeks, the majority of patients have recovered enough that they can resume reasonable activities of daily living. So I guess maybe it's about 50-50 in terms of the fraction of people who might be considered for a transplant kind of in a program as opposed to a non-transplant program. Can you talk a little bit about the overall management of these patients? You mentioned the induction before transplant and the potential for treating after transplant. How do we approach these patients in general and how does it differ today than say maybe five years ago? Well, I think it's different in that our patients are more and more educated of what they expect and what they know about the transplant. And I would say, without a doubt, the one element that is critical for a successful transplant is a team effort and with good communication and coordination of care. Uh, there's many members of this team, obviously the physician and the patient, the pharmacist, the outpatient nurses, and the inpatient nurses, as well as our mid-level providers. Most of the things that occur around the transplant are expected and they can be dealt with, but they do require the constant surveillance and communication between the different members of the team. Now, some institutions carry out the transplant recovery process as an outpatient. Some of them keep the patients inpatient for coordination of care. 
But even after the patient leaves the hospital, there's a period of time of maybe one to several weeks post-transplant where the patients need to be monitored very closely in the outpatient setting with blood counts being determined, uh, physical examination, attention to symptoms, attention to dehydration and rehydrating patients as necessary, and administration of antibiotics as needed for infections. I was more trying to get into the new agents and what the new agents are that we have available to treat myeloma. And first, we can start out talking about how they're integrated into the transplant overall plan. Well, in the old days, we had simple induction regimens such as VAD chemotherapy, VAD, and then we subsequently moved to a combination such as the and dexamethasone. With those combinations, we got a best response rate of about 60-65%, with very few patients getting into a complete remission at the time of transplant. We now have five different global class of agents that are used for the treatment of multiple myeloma. First are the corticosteroids, and this include, of course, dexamethasone and prednisone. We have the alkylators such as melphalan and cyclophosphamide. But in the recent years, we've had the addition of three main classes of drugs, including the immunomodulatory drugs, and this includes the thalidomide, lenalidomide, and now in development, pomalidomide. Then the protosome inhibitors is a second class of agents, bortezomib, and now in development, carfilzomib, and also liposomal doxorubicin. Now, these agents have shown great activity against myeloma, both as single agents and in combination in the setting of patients who have relapsed disease. They quickly moved to the frontline therapy for the disease. With the availability of these agents, we have been able to improve substantially our ability not only to control a larger proportion of patients, but also to induce much deeper and higher quality of responses in patients who are being geared towards a stem cell transplant. Can you kind of go through each of these types of agents in terms of how they work, how well they work, and then what the side effects and toxicity are, beginning with the so-called IMIDs? The IMIDs, the prototype currently used most widely is lenalidomide. Lenalidomide is an oral agent. Patients are usually treated with a pill once per day at 25 milligrams, and they're treated for three weeks, followed by one week of rest. Most patients who are treated with lenalidomide are also treated at the same time with a corticosteroid, most commonly now with one weekly dose of 40 milligrams of dexamethasone. Lenalidomide is a very well-tolerated drug. Some of its side effects include the possibility of myelosuppression, so we look for evidence of neutropenia, occasionally rash, and one side effect that one needs to be monitoring for and cautious about with lenalidomide in combination with dexamethasone is a possibility of deep venous thrombosis. For that reason, it is very important that every patient who is treated with one of these IMIT agents, again, thalidomide or lenalidomide, in combination with dexamethasone, receives counseling and treatment that tries to prevent the development of deep venous thrombosis because in the absence of this prophylaxis, up to one in six to one in four patients will develop a lower extremity thrombosis. Now, the agents are simple to administer. They're oral, so they are convenient, and patients just usually go once per month to the treatment center to monitor their myeloma laboratories and assess for toxicity. What about dermatologic side effects? So the main one with the lenalidomide is a rash. This is a rash that can sometimes be severe, but most often it's mild. And it's something that occasionally will respond to those modifications or temporary interruption of the treatment. It is unusual that one cannot use one of the agents because of the dermatologic toxicity, at least in the setting 
of multiple myeloma. Now, in the past, another one of these agents, thalidomide, was used. What are the side effects and efficacy there? So the side effects of thalidomide are the same as described for lenalidomide, except that there's others added into it, and that includes the possibility of somnolence and also constipation. In addition to that, patients who receive thalidomide have a much greater propensity for the development of peripheral neuropathy. The peripheral neuropathy associated with thalidomide is mostly sensory, but I personally think that the vast majority of patients who get thalidomide over a long period of time will ultimately develop sensory peripheral neuropathy. Now, these drugs go by the name of imids or immune modulatory agents. How are they thought to work? No one knows for sure. Recent data suggests interference with certain signaling processes inside the cells. Initially, they were thought to potentially act through two mechanisms. One of them was inhibiting angiogenesis or the formation of new blood vessels inside the bone marrow, and that has not been substantiated. And there's a body of evidence that suggests that they might modulate the immune system and how it can attack the myeloma cells, and that's why they were originally called immunomodulatory drugs. Now, one of the things that is obviously associated with these two drugs, and it's an important part of the prescription process, is that they should be used with utmost caution on people who could become pregnant. So there's a number of safeguards that exist in the dispensing of lenalidomide, the dispensing of thalidomide, but that is one of the key elements of the communication and discussion with the patients because careless use of even a single as one pill of these drugs could potentially carry teratogenic effects on an unborn baby. Yeah, I guess a lot of people have heard about thalidomide. I guess it was originally actually a sedative or sleeping pill. But you're saying lenalidomide also has been associated with birth defects? So fortunately, we don't know. But there's enough concern because of the mechanism of action and the structure of the molecule that we treat it as if it was. You also mentioned increased risk of thrombosis with these agents. How much of an increase is it, and how do you approach preventing that? So myeloma patients, by virtue of their immobility, will have an increased risk of deep venous thrombosis at the time of diagnosis. However, it is clear if patients are treated with these agents in combination, the risk goes up to about 16 to 25%. Now, A number of clinical trials that have addressed the question of thrombosis prophylaxis as a secondary endpoint to those studies have shown that doing something is important. Now, this something could be in the way of aspirin, which has been shown on some clinical trials to reduce the risk of deep venous thrombosis, as well as full anticoagulation. There are international guidelines that try to provide some clarity on this issue, but there are no phase three clinical trials that document the best treatment option or the best preventive option for thrombosis in these patients. So clinical judgment is important. If a patient is believed to be at high risk for thrombosis, such as those who have greater immobility, comorbid conditions, previous history of blood clots, one should definitely consider the more intensive regimen, such as Coumadin. However, for a patient who is ambulatory and who has no other risk factors for thrombosis, The community has agreed that aspirin prophylaxis, either with 81 or 325 milligrams, would be sufficient. Now, the other new type of agent that's really changed management of myeloma dramatically is the so-called proteasome inhibitor, and specifically bortezomib is the one that's being used right now. There are others being studied. How do these agents work, and what do you see in terms of side effects and efficacy? So the protosome inhibitors, it's a whole new class. These are injectable medications, although some of them are being developed in future clinical trials as oral compounds. What they do is they inhibit this organelle within the cell called the protosome, 
which disposes of proteins that are no longer needed. And in doing so, it is believed that there's a chaos that's generated inside those cells that ultimately leads to cell death. The protosome inhibitors are given as a quick injection, so they're not a prolonged infusion. And the way they're supposed to be prescribed is twice per week. So most patients were treated on a Monday-Thursday, Monday-Thursday schedule, followed by a week of rest. Now, recent clinical data suggest that the administration of protosome inhibitors on a once-week basis may result in similar efficacy and less toxicity. The toxicity for protosome inhibitors includes gastrointestinal disturbances, lowering of the platelet count, something that needs to be monitored in patients who receive these agents. But the most important and perhaps disturbing aspect of protosome inhibitors is when a patient who's getting them develops a peripheral neuropathy. The peripheral neuropathy in a patient getting a protosome inhibitor is seen in approximately 40% of patients getting the medication, with about one in four of these patients getting a severe peripheral neuropathy, and that could be in the form of a motor neuropathy or painful peripheral neuropathy. The key there is the continuous and careful surveillance of patients, and that is something that we need a lot of support from nursing staff and from patients as well, too. I make it very explicit at the initiation of therapy that I need to know about new symptoms. And if I don't ask patients about peripheral neuropathy symptoms, I urge them to mention them to me if they have them so that as a team, we don't lose track of where a patient might be in the process of developing peripheral neuropathy. Because if a patient starts experiencing symptoms, most of the time, dose reduction or discontinuation of the drug will prevent this from progressing further although there are some instances where peripheral neuropathy can arise rather quickly and still be present despite the monitoring. Now, if there's any sign of neuropathy, if patients feel tingling, et cetera, do you then hold or stop the drug or do you wait until it gets a little bit more severe? Yeah, I tend to decrease the doses early on just because of the potential severity of the neuropathy. There's some anecdotal evidence perhaps suggesting increased responsiveness in some of those patients that have peripheral neuropathy And there's plenty of evidence of efficacy of the drug at lower doses. So I have been more conservative in the use of the drug as far as reduction in the doses, but trying to keep the patient on schedule. And obviously, if there's any concern about pain or severity of the neuropathy, then stopping and restarting later or considering switching to another class of drugs. You mentioned the fact that it's been seen that with changing the schedule, particularly instead of giving it twice a week to giving it once a week, that affects the risk of neuropathy. How much of a difference does it make and how has it affected the way people, including yourself, have used the drug in practice? For me, it has been overall a very positive change. I think it's clearly more convenient to patients, something that has led to increased patient compliance. I think it has simplified our planning with our nursing staff as well as our chemotherapy unit staff. And what we know from the published studies now is that the efficacy is about the same with a lower number of patients discontinuing therapy as a consequence of severe peripheral neuropathy. All in all, I think this will allow for longer duration of therapy with bortezomib, which going back to one of the themes at the beginning of our conversation is that treating myeloma patients for longer might be better And if one can do so because the patients can tolerate a drug and don't have the side effects specific to the drug, then we have a win-win situation. Now, another key building block in the systemic therapy of these patients, as you mentioned, is corticosteroids or dexamethasone. How is it used and what are some of the problems that are seen? So the majority of the patients will receive 
one of these corticosteroids associated with the multiple treatment regimens. They, in fact, kill myeloma cells. This is a frequent question I get from patients. So what do they do? And if you do a bone marrow of a patient who gets dexamethasone alone, and you do it before and after, you'll see a reduction in the number of the plasma cells of the patient response. Now, these agents are, for the most part, used orally. And because of recent data, particularly a clinical trial, E4AO3, that we conducted in the setting of the cooperative group ECOG, patients have been treated with lower doses, which has resulted, again, in longer duration of therapy, similar efficacy, perhaps a little bit less, but much greater safety. This is a part of the discussion with patients and their families that I put more emphasis on. I, in general, think that corticosteroids pose the biggest challenge to the quality of life of patients during their treatment schedule, particularly because corticosteroids can have a number of effects that we call the neurocognitive toxicity, irritability, anxiety, depression, mood swings, and I will routinely tell patients that this is equivalent to them being stuck in a highway without being able to move. The kindest of person will be short-fused, lose their temper, and I think it's important that patients and families realize that. Now, there are other more serious side effects from the corticosteroids. This include pancreatitis, so patients should report unexplained severe abdominal pain, uncontrolled diabetes, so patients who have polyuria or polydipsia and should be monitored carefully, and particularly those patients that are known to have diabetes. And overall, they create a state of immunosuppression such that patients can have infections, sometimes opportunistic infections, when they have been treated for long with corticosteroids. Other long-term toxicities, of course, include osteopenia, cataract formation, and avascular necrosis of the hip. So with that, we're sort of talking about the building blocks. Maybe you can go through, again, at a very, very basic level, kind of how these drugs and other drugs are then put together in utilizing it in the transplant and non-transplant situation. So for most transplant patients, we try to develop combinations that will result in rapid disease control, that will do so safely, and we have two big options. One is to use an immunomodulatory drug in combination with one of the corticosteroids, or to use a proteasome inhibitor-based regimen. Now, the first one is attractive in that it's very convenient. A patient who lives far away from a treatment center can complete the safe induction, for instance, with the treatment with lenalidomide and low-dose dexamethasone alone. Now, more and more, we've seen these agents being used in combination, and the backbone of this has been bortezomib. Bortezomib can be combined with lenalidomide itself. It can be combined with thalidomide in a regimen called VTD, and it can be combined as well with an alkylator. I think any one of those three combinations is an adequate induction treatment for a patient considering a stem cell transplant. Now, of course, that's with a corticosteroid. Right. Each one of those combinations always has dexamethasone associated with it. And I think for someone in the community to be very practical, just learning how to manage one of those combinations is sufficient as they are felt all to be equivalent in the induction therapy for a myeloma patient. Now, when you talk about an alkylator, I guess maybe the most common one would be cyclophosphamide. Can you talk about that regimen specifically when you combine bortezomib, cyclophosphamide, and dexamethasone? Sure. One of the regimens we have used the most at our center in the off-study setting, as well as inside clinical trials, has been this regimen we call Cyborg-D. So we combine oral cyclophosphamide, which is given 500 milligrams once per week orally, alongside intravenous bortezomib, also given once per week, 
and dexamethasone, usually at 40 milligrams. The way we have simplified this for our patients and our staff is to use this on a weekly basis without interruption. So many of our patients now before transplant will get 16 weeks of therapy with the CyberD regimen. The toxicities are those specific to the bortezomib that I discussed previously, as well as the dexamethasone. We have found this regimen to be highly active with essentially all patients responding. I have only one patient I can think of that has not responded to this regimen of many I have treated. And more importantly, the majority of patients have very deep responses with published complete response rates before transplant that approximate 50% between complete and near-complete responses and perhaps 60 to 70% complete and near-complete responses in the post-transplant setting. So we have found this regimen to be very well tolerated and effective. And again, this could be one of the many options someone in the community could use as induction therapy for the disease. So there are a variety of choices then in terms of what the patient might be treated with before transplant. How long are these patients treated before they actually go to transplant? As part of inheriting a tradition of how long we treated myeloma, most of these patients have been treated for four months. Some have started to question whether a shorter induction duration might be sufficient. With some of those regimens getting into a CR in one or two cycles of therapy, the question has been brought forward as to whether those patients might be better off moving straight to the transplant. But I would say for the majority of patients, still four cycles of induction therapy is a standard. Now, what about after the transplant is done in terms of more therapy? So most of the time we wait for at least three months until the so-called day 100 post-transplant to look at the patient's status in recovery. At that point, we start bringing up the discussion of maintenance. Now, because of this recent data, I'm actually talking to my patients about the possibility of maintenance even before they go through the transplant so that they are not surprised in the post-transplant period. At this point, as the data matures and continues to emerge, there is an important suggestion that the use of lenalidomide as maintenance therapy might be beneficial to patients in the long term. So this is a key element now of our discussion. In academic circles, we have very, very long discussions of what to do at this point, but I personally feel this is an important discussion to have with patients. There are perhaps certain patients that are going to have absolute complete responses and as we get better at doing monitoring for the disease post-transplant, one may question if they might need maintenance therapy. But most of us agree that for the majority of patients, and particularly if there's any residual disease measurable whatsoever, the discussion should occur regarding maintenance treatment for their disease. And I guess the viewpoint on maintenance changed a lot in June at the ASCO meeting where there was very positive data presented on using lenalidomide in this situation. What kind of doses are used and how long are the patients treated? Well, there were two different schedules because in one study they gave them a short induction, all patients, and then patients were randomized to maintenance versus not. In the other study, patients were moved straight to maintenance. Just generally, I think the overall concepts are that, one, we cannot keep corticosteroids for too long. So even if a patient gets a corticosteroid associated with lenalidomide in the post-transplant, this is going to have to stop at some point. And two is that using lower doses makes this more tolerable with a lower rate of side effects. So many of our patients have been in lower doses, around 10 and 15 milligrams of lenalidomide as maintenance for the disease. And this is also something that may need to happen just because of the myelosuppression that can be associated with the lenalidomide. So that's something important for the physician and their team to monitor.
Now, how about in a situation where the patient's older and transplant really isn't going to be on the table? How do people approach systemic therapy there? So I think in that scenario, pragmatic considerations override almost everything because we have many treatment options for these patients. The very elderly could be treated, for instance, with a simple regimen such as MP. We had the French study that showed the superiority of MP plus the lutomide versus MP. So that moved the idea of a triplet drug combination to the forefront in the elderly. We had the VISTA trial, which did the same thing, except that now MP was combined with bortezomib, and again, showing an improvement in the overall survival of patients. And most recently, physicians have been using len-low-dose dexamethasone, and now with a tolerability of the lower doses of dexamethasone as treatment for the elderly. So Traditionally, we thought of a melphalan-based regimen as the backbone for the treatment of the elderly. But again, this could be challenged with some of the ongoing clinical trials that are looking at len low dose dex as primary, sole, and continuous therapy for this group of patients. You mentioned melphalan, and you mentioned that before in terms of the transplant, but obviously this is given at much lower doses. What are the issues that come up in terms of side effects and toxicity? Well, melphalan in the pill form is very, very well tolerated. When I was in training, we used to say that everyone is a candidate for melphalan just because it's so well tolerated. The main discussion that needs to occur with the patient is surrounding the issue of bone marrow toxicity and long-term stem cell toxicity. There is a possibility of a patient being treated long-term with melphalan, of development of myelodysplasia or secondary acute leukemia. So those are things that need to be discussed with patients. Fortunately, it happens in a small minority of patients, but that is our main concern. In the short term, the management primarily focuses on finding the right dose occasionally with adjustments that are required for myelosuppression. So in this situation, do these patients receive treatment continuously or do you stop it and sort of, if they have a response and kind of wait? So most patients who are treated with a melphalan-based regimen, be that MP, MPT, or MPV, are treated for about 12 to occasionally 18 months of therapy. And then therapy is discontinued, primarily because of this concern of the risk of the long-term effects on stem cells. And what about retreatment? And what situations do you begin treatment again? Do you change it? Do you use the same thing again? How do you approach the second type of treatment? So most of the time, we look at the intervals since the last treatment to determine what to do next. But almost always, people in the community have opted for doing crossover to the other class of drugs. So for instance, a patient who gets an induction regimen with something that contains bortezomib, say CyberD, and the patient has a transplant, and ultimately the patient experiences a relapse, our first line of therapy would be lenalidomide. Likewise, if a patient has received lenalidomide as primary therapy for the disease and ultimately relapses, switching over to bortezomib would be the first choice. Now, there are some interesting new principles in myeloma, and one of them is that retreatment with the same drug may actually work, and in fact, it frequently does. So if a patient had a previous good response to a drug, they might respond again to that drug. Number two is that crossover within the same category may actually result in disease control. So this was initially shown by patients who were refractory to thalidomide, responding favorably to lenalidomide. And the last concept is that sometimes when these agents don't work alone, they will work in combination. So a patient, for instance, who is failing bortezomib, is failing lenalidomide, you combine them and they work. Likewise, a patient who gets bortezomib and is not responding, cyclophosphamide is added to the regimen, and then the patient responds. 
So those are important factors to consider alongside with previous toxicity and uh, long-term complications experienced from prior therapy. So using this type of approach in both the transplant and non-transplant situation, how long do patients, uh, obviously there's a variation, but how long do they survive and how much of that time generally are they feeling well? Well, you know, for some of our patients in the standard risk category, it's not unusual now to see them in the clinic where they're going through a sixth or a seventh line of therapy. So those are the myeloma patients who have this so-called chronic disease. And even then, sometimes we get gratifying responses to some of those agents, again, in combination or some of the new agents. So we will see a number of lines of treatment being administered to these patients. For the high risk, again, sometimes and no matter what, it remains a challenge to put those patients into a durable Remissions. So this is something that has changed how we think about the disease, because while we always did this, I think more than ever, it's important to pay attention to the schedule and the ordering of your agents as far as trying to minimize this long-term toxicity. And what's the you know, variation in terms of survival? You know, no one knows for sure. There's one Greek study that compared patients seen in Greek before and after the year 2000, essentially with the doubling of the median survival for patients under the age of 70 and with access to the novel drugs. I think we don't really have a precise answer. We used to talk about three years, maybe for most myeloma patients. I think it's more now in the order of approximately six to perhaps eight years for patients. With a caveat, again, that those with high-risk disease will not enjoy this durable disease control. Now, you mentioned the idea of higher risk or high-risk disease. What constitutes patients who fall into that category? Well, there's multiple ways to define this, but most of the time when we're using this concept now, we're describing the intrinsic biology of the disease as opposed to just the overall health of the person. So we look at markers for high-risk genetic features, such as the high-risk translocations. We look at new methods for doing this through this genomic studies, including gene expression profiling. Some have used the use of karyotype analysis for doing this. And what are all these things looking at? So all of these things look at the different genetic subtypes of myeloma that may identify patients who have a more aggressive variant of the disease. And even if we don't have perfect ways to treat differently each one of these groups of patients, I think it provides a different hue to how I discuss the disease and the implications and the prognosis with patients and their families. What about the use of radiation therapy in multiple myeloma? So radiation has been used mostly as a local control feature. It is used for the treatment of plasma cytomas and local growth of myeloma cells. It is a very, very useful therapeutic modality, but one, of course, we cannot use systemic. We can't use radiation for the whole body. And in the majority of cases, when radiation is provided to a focal site, the plasma cytoma will respond. It is important to think about it in the context of spinal cord compression. Most myeloma patients should be treated with radiation if they have a plasma cytoma that is resulting in spinal cord compression, as this is a rapidly responding disease to such therapy. What's a plasma cytoma? A plasma cytoma is a focal collection of myeloma cells. It is just the term we use to describe that growth. This can arise from the bone, so essentially it's just a lump of the cells but they could be also located outside of the bone marrow, what we call extramedullary plasma cytomas. And in some cases, again, this is something that could lead to spinal cord compression. Can you talk a little bit about the issues related to bone and multiple myeloma? Obviously, this is a major you know, aspect of the disease. What kinds of problems do patients have? Why do they get these problems? And how do you approach preventing and treating them? 
So most patients with myeloma will be at risk of developing bone lesions, and as I mentioned before, it is because of the growth of the cells inside the bone marrow. The myeloma cells secrete certain substances that promote resorption of bone and inhibit new bone formation. So at the very least, patients will have uh, variants of osteoporosis, osteopenia, but also as there is focal growth of the cells in certain areas and some of those plasma cytomas erode into the bone, the patient will have weak areas that will put them at risk for fracture. Now, this can occur any place there is bone marrow. So in adults, this is most commonly seen in the spine, the rib cage, and the proximal areas of extremities. So it is unusual to see myeloma bone disease from the knee down and from the elbow down. I tell myeloma patients to look out for symptoms that worsen with movement. And if a patient finds symptoms that get worse as they carry a load or they perform certain movement, that should be suspect for myeloma bone lesions. Also, one way to differentiate this from arthritis is that myeloma bone pain tends to be more localized in the shaft of bones as opposed to their joint location for arthritis-related pain, which, by the way, is one that usually gets better as a person gets going with the day, as opposed to the myeloma pain that is usually best if the person does not move at all. Now, this is very, very important to recognize because occasionally it's the first sign of an underlying area at risk for pathologic fracture. Many of our patients will ultimately have one of this and they might require surgical intervention. For instance, if this is in a femur or other weight-bearing area. But even if they don't, myeloma bone disease can be one of the most devastating complications of the disease. When one thinks about the most common type of lesion in myeloma, and that is a vertebral compression fracture, this is something that even if it heals, can lead to lifelong disability and pain, obviously with significant detriment to the quality of life of the patient. What about bone-targeted therapy, particularly bisphosphonates, and then there's a new agent, denosumab? So there's a number of agents that have now been used and have been validated in myeloma, particularly the bisphosphonates, which have shown to decrease the number of skeletal-related events. And in a recent presentation at the American Society of Clinical Oncology, this resulted in not only reduction of events, but improvement in the survival of patients. So I think this will be with us for some time, the use of agents such as zoledronic acid and pomidronate. Now, because of their effectiveness and trying to look for new modalities of the treatment of osteopenia and myeloma bone disease, the nozumab, it's being looked at as an agent to try to prevent bone loss and formation of new bone. This is a monoclonal antibody as opposed to the bisphosphonates, which were small molecules. Now, all these agents do carry at risk of a rare complication, something called osteonecrosis. Uh, and this is something that occurs primarily in the mandible. Many of us think this is a price of success because these agents favor so much new bone growth that in the mandible, this may ultimately compromise blood supply. So occasionally we see patients who have issues such as ulcers or exposed bone in their mandible. And this is something that needs to be considered in patients receiving these agents. So these patients, do they have pain? They can have pain. Sometimes it is asymptomatic. They can sometimes have an associated infection with infection signs and symptoms that come along. And we counsel patients on this for a number of reasons. We like to use them now, not indefinitely, but with the duration of therapy, usually about two years is what we're recommending and perhaps spacing out or discontinuing the treatment afterwards. We counsel patients on obtaining early dental care. Some of these complications appear to be precipitated by dental extraction, so those could be done early on in the course of the disease of a patient. So I ask all my patients to go early on to a dentist. 
Usually things such as cleaning and cavity filling is okay, but if someone's going to have an exposed area in the mandible, then the patient will be at risk for osteonecrosis. And last but not least, there's some empirical data suggesting that the use of antibiotics when a person is going to go on invasive dental procedure might reduce in a very significant fashion the risk of osteonecrosis. So that's something that we're doing for our patients as well. And another term that people use is ONJ, osteonecrosis of the jaw. What do you see when you look inside a patient's mouth? Well, you can see a number of things. I saw a patient yesterday where what you see is a normal pink mucosa of the mouth and suddenly there's an area of exposed bone and it looks just healthy bone colored material, a spongy bone that comes out. Sometimes you see that plus associated irritation in the gum line. And I've seen also a full-blown abscess and associated drainage of purulent material associated with a secondary infection. And of course, this has been seen in a lot of different diseases. At any time when people have been treated with bisphosphonates, what's the risk of it developing? I think the risk has been estimated approximately 5% on patients who have chronic therapy with bisphosphonates. And it's something that appears to increase with a longer duration of therapy and the more powerful agents. And again, it's something that is a minority of patients, but I think with those precautions and judicious use of the bisphosphonates, hopefully we'll see even a lower incidence of this complication.